Hey gang, it's John. Welcome to a huge episode of Deep Dive. We're talking with the fantastic guitarist Steve Stevens. Of course, he is uh, Billy Idol's compadre, and we're talking about, we're deep diving that seminal album from 1983, Rebel Yell. Four huge hits, the title track, Eyes Without a Face, Flesh for Fantasy, Catch My Fall. Uh, Steve co-wrote almost all of the songs on the album. So, of course, we get deep into kind of their process of how they came up with songs, and of course, how Keith Forsey, the producer, what his input meant to this project. I mean, I think you guys will agree, Rebel Yell is one of the key albums ever, but especially of the 80s. I mean, it defined a sound for sure. And I don't think Billy and Steve would have the careers they have now if not for the success of this album. So anyway, huge, huge get to let to have Steve come back and chat with us about this. I hope you guys love it. I love this album and I love him. Okay, so for starters, though, I got to tell you, you looked great doing the Super Bowl pre-show. And it was fun because I had, there were probably half a dozen people or so that had been on our podcast that showed up in the Super Bowl somewhere, either performing like you, or they had a song on a commercial or something like mm -hmm. that. And every time I would hear from all of our listeners, did you see Steve Stevens? He was killing it. So how did that even happen? Well, you know, we've, uh, you know, I have a long history with, uh, with not just Miley, but uh, I've, perf I actually performed Rebel Yell with her dad at a Gibson party once. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah and I came, came out of the blue and I was, I got the call and they said, Oh, Billy Ray, you know, is a big fan and wants to do yeah. Rebel Yell. And I went, yeah, sure. You know, and then we've done, we've done uh, a performance. I forgot what it was for. Um, iHeartRadio or something ah. with, with Miley before okay. uh, with Idol's full band, but he did a song with her on her latest record. So she asked him to perform on that and said, right. Hey, why don't, why don't we do a mashup kind of thing with, White Wedding and the song yeah. that they did. That was killer. Who, who am I to say no? <laughs> <laughs> that was killer. Yeah. I love it. I love when younger generations, well, first of all, the music, as we're going to discuss here in a second, is basically timeless. I mean, it's it has not aged. It still sounds fantastic. And so, which makes it prime for younger generations to discover without any kind of irony or anything like that. It's just pure, right. still pure driving rock and roll. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, th I think in the case of, of Miley, she, she's a huge rock and roll fan. Mm -hmm. um, not only Billy was on her record, but Joan Jett. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's she's a rocker at heart. So it, it's great that she's kind of exposing her fans mm -hmm. to some of the stuff that influenced her. I'm sure she grew up with it. Uh, obviously, her dad was a fan. So she probably heard Reliel in yeah. the house when she was a kid or something. And, uh, yeah. and uh, she just naturally gravitates. She's a larger than life personality. And she recognizes little, you know, in the eighties, that, that, that whole, yeah. that, that was a big part of it. So it's cool. And, and she's a, she's just a great, great person and, and hardworking and no ego involved. She's, she, she's as cool as can be. And Good. It's, it's great. Good. I'm glad. I, I'm glad you guys got that kind of exposure. And then also I heard, so you and Billy are working on new music. You're working on a new solo album and a flamenco album. Is that right? All these things are happening right now? Yeah. Well, okay. The, the, the Billy stuff. Um, yeah. We actually went in, you know, uh, just about a year ago, we finished 
our last show in Vegas uh-huh. and then COVID hit, but we were all already scheduled to work with producer Butch Walker. Mm-hmm. And uh, we said, well, Butch is kind of a one man army. You know, he um, quarantined, mm-hmm. idle quarantined, I quarantined. And we just met up in the studio and the three of us uh, came up with some incredible music. Awesome. Uh, and it's all been mixed and mastered. And uh, uh, I don't know when the, plan is to put it out sometime this year. Okay. I don't, I don't, I'm not, not sure if it'll be the first half or the latter sure. part of the year, but um, sure. so, um, and that was like a saving grace. I mean, it was like to continue to be creative and have a purpose other than, yeah. uh, you know, just sitting at home, waiting it out, you know? Yes. So, the, you know, the, yeah, that the Billy stuff will definitely uh, come out at some point, you know, I had done a Flamenco record and then that, mm-hmm. you know, Consequentially, after that, I did a rock, you know, an instrumental guitar record. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it'll be a combined, uh, mm. you know, electric and flamenco solo okay. record. Um, I'm toying with the idea of having guest vocalists on on some tracks. So maybe one side of it is acoustic flamenco. You know, that's such a big part of what I do. Sure. Sure. And then the other part will be. Uh, electric guitar won't well, you know I'm not, I'm not really Figure up for for doing a shred record i want to do i'm, I'm so I, I think there's so many great songwriters now and people that i can bounce ideas off of and you can file share and write with people on the other side of the planet now and and move uh you know songs along so that intrigues me more than me uh sitting at home and coming up with tracks and playing guitar over it i'd like to involve as much collaboration as yeah. possible. May as well. May as well. That's how music's made today with Dropbox and files and being mailed around, all that stuff. And you, I'm sure, has has a huge has a huge Rolodex of people you could call at any time to come sing or play or whatever on anything you're working on. Yeah, for me, it's usually the people that I don't personally know. You oh, know? interesting. You know, to see what they, you know, and yeah. pe- pe- I love those ideas of out of left field, you uh-huh. know, because uh, those are the things that that I don't quite know what the outcome is going to be. And I love that, you know, I've been making records a long time. And, you know, if I uh, call up somebody that I kind of know or, you know, or know their stuff. Yeah, I know what it's going to sound yeah, like pretty yeah, much. True, it's going to sound like me and that person. <laughs> so it's great for me to kind of go, oh, that's even know. better. Yeah, that's, yeah. you know, sometimes it doesn't always work. but Sure, you know. sure. But it's worth the it's worth the creative excursion. That's a great idea. Yeah, I love that. Okay, well, we're going to talk about Rebel Yell. This, you know, I was thinking, Steve, getting ready to talk to you. Uh, maybe you'll deny this or have a different take on it. I wonder if you would, you may not even be where you are today without this album in particular. Don't you think? Because the first album was good, fine. The second one was pretty good. This one is cemented you and Billy forever, thanks to this yeah. album. Yeah, this is the one that that broke everything wide open for us. Come baby, you got a license for love 
A lot of people don't realize the, the first album, although White Wedding was on it, wasn't a big seller, you know. I think it hovered around the 50 and the Billboard charts and, you know, White Wedding wasn't like a huge single. It became a big seller after Rebel Yell. So, yeah, this is the one that, that, that you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I was reading it sold, I believe, two million copies. Was that then? Do you have an idea of how many it sold since? I would imagine it'd be higher than that. Yeah, in the states, it sold two. Uh, in, in in the year that it was released, it eventually uh -huh. sold two and a half million. Okay. It actually took the UK the longest because we had success in the states, Germany, and Australia, and Canada. Canada was very instrumental in, in mm. Billy's success. We were playing big venues up there before we were here. So eventually the UK got on board and it was actually Eyes Without a Face that really right, yeah. brought that, you know, it was yeah. a big single. So Yeah, uh, it was. So I think, um, I, I don't know the exact figures now. Of okay. It, it, you know, it's probably worldwide somewhere around 12, 13 million. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I was thinking back to my own history with it. My first, you know, you get asked that question a lot. What's what's the first album you ever bought or whatever? And mm. my album, my answer to that is not very fun because the first one I remember doing was uh, signing up for Columbia House. Okay, so, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. so I got a bunch of records, and yeah. it was this one, and it was Let's Dance, and Synchronicity, and Rant and Rave with the Stray Cats, and An Innocent Man, and Sports, and all mm. the other like big albums from that era were yeah. in that, you know, package that I got right yeah. there. Well, the, the, yeah, that, that's good company to be in. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I remember records. Yeah. yeah, that and I got my mom a Neil Diamond record and my dad a Placido Domingo record. Oh, and, cool. But the All rest right. were for me. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. So, yeah, anyway. Okay, so it came out on November 10th, 1983. Um, it's named after the Rebel Yell whiskey that uh, Billy discovered at a party with the Rolling Stones at Ronnie Wood's house, right? Yeah, I believe it was Ronnie's birthday. We were, we were, um, uh, Ronnie had, uh, actually Ronnie uh, painted a portrait of Billy 
they became fast and furious friends. Ronnie was living in New York at the time. And I actually recorded an album with Ronnie that was never released. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And, um, it's incredible. Like yeah. in the eighties or something. Yeah. When yeah. Around that same time, right after oh, rebel yeah. yell. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 such a fantastic guy to hang out with. And, yeah. um, and, uh, I remember, um, you know, we came out of the session bleary eyed in the morning and, uh-huh. You know, we had pulled an all-nighter recording, and uh, there was like some deli or so. I think the, the studio was off 8th Avenue, and there's a, a little deli or something. He said, you know, when I came over with it, that used to be a hotel there. It was the first hotel I stayed in in New York when I was in the Jeff Beck group. No way. And, yeah, it was like. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, great, great bit of wow. history there. Um, Killer. So, yeah, he. Uh, you know, uh, the story that Billy is told is uh, they uh, Ronnie's birthday and they're drinking this this whiskey and it's, you know, Rebel Yell. And uh, I think Billy's, you know, he's very good ideas person said, oh, yeah. you guys aren't use, using this for a song title. And they, <laughs> like, said, no. no, no, you know, That's so right. uh, so we had the music, you know, we were. Uh, we were in the studio. We were we were working on the music for Rebel Yell, and um, that wasn't one of the first batch of songs that we had rehearsed. But we we were just jamming along, and just the two of us coming up with riffs and things like uh-huh. that. And uh, we had the we had good part good portion of the music. And he came in and said, "Ah, I think I have the title." And yeah, really? and, um, and then from that point on, we were off and running with that, with the title track. Yeah. So the music was already being worked out, but without yeah. any, like a chorus or, you know, anything no like title, that. No title. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When we talked before, you had mentioned, I always, uh, I often close out interviews with asking what people's proudest moments are. And I remember you saying specifically that being able to play that opening riff of Rebel Yell anywhere in the world and having people go bananas is one of your like proudest moments. Yeah. I think for any instrumentalist, obviously, you know, if you're a singer and you sing a lot, you know, people go, ah, I love that song, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is, you know, yeah. born in the USA, you know, right. I'm sure when Bruce, you know, uh, you know, hits that first opening sure. line, it's, it's, you know, it's goosebumps, huh? you yeah. know, but for, for an instrumentalist and, you know, to have a signifying beginning of a song, uh, that people know and know what, and they love, you know, you've nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've reached immortality. Okay. I was curious when, like when we, when that song begins and you hear that opening riff, now that I know that you were sort of working on the music before the words or before the title anyway, is that something you came up with on your own that dun, 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 dun. you had that in the back of your, you had that going while you're writing the song and you built around it. That was actually added after the oh. track track was recorded. One of one of the modus operandi that we we devised was um, uh, we, we our producer Keith Forsey called it a flag. He said we need something at the front of the song to let them know, like the cavalry's coming. You know, because you can imagine that song if it started without that, you know, it wouldn't be as you know powerful. Yeah. Agreed. And and you don't want the whole band to come in. You want one singular thing to come in. And that actual guitar riff and technique was part of a song that I had used in my previous band. Oh. So it was something that was in my back pocket. And I thought 
someday I'll use it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. I love yeah. that. And then yeah. I was going back reading Billy's book to get some nuggets to bring into our conversation. One of the things that I was reminded of is that that spoken part, he just came up with that on the spot. He, that, that wasn't, he didn't write that out or pre-think it. He just got it out there right then and there. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we, we, we always, one of the methods to our madness was always to have 32 bars in the middle of a song because we were going to do dance remixes. We didn't quite know what we were going to do with those 32 bars, mm -hmm. but uh, there's 32 bars in the middle of White Wedding, Eyes on a Face, 32 bars. We'd always record the song because you can always take, you can always edit it out, but you can't add it in, right. add it in because you don't have it. Yeah. Um, so Rebel Yell had this 32 bars in the middle and we kind of built it up and uh, came up with a little guitar melody. Essentially, Rebel Yell is four chords. It really yeah. doesn't veer off the verse and the chorus and the bridge are all the same chords. But yeah, we had 32 bars, and, and once we had enough music in there, I believe Billy just went in there and kind of ad-libbed, as you, as you ad -lib, mentioned. Ad-libbed, that's and, the word. You know, it's very inspiring, and yeah. um, he's done that in quite a number of cases. Yeah. And when you see it happen, you go, man, where did you... <laughs> Where did you get that from? And I don't know, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't know. That's but, great. And we, and we were all like, you know, in the, you know, control room going crazy. Like, that's so great. You know, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And when he does that, huh, huh, that uh, guttural kind of laugh, is that, is that another thing that like, where does that come from? When you're writing the song, do you think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a <laughs> huh, huh, part, or do you just make that up on the spot? In the I'm, room. I'm sure it's just instinct. Okay. With, okay. With I wondered. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, you know, Keith Forsey was kind of on fire right then yeah. in so many ways. And uh, I love him. I love everything he's done. Is there much of a difference between what a demo of a song like this might've sound like with just the two of you and what Keith does with it when it's the final product that comes out? In the case of Rebel Yell, we never did demos. Oh, okay. Um, very rarely did Billy and I... Well, the only demo we did was Blue Highway hmm. um, because we had a chunk of songs done and we needed some more. So we went into a, a little uh, inexpensive little studio, came up with Blue Highway. But uh, we did rehearse. Uh, we did a fair amount of pre-production. And uh, I remember the... the um, the little rehearsal studio that we were in, the person, the other person in the room next door was Miles Davis. So, oh. <laughs> so I, do, I would see, I remember the first time I realized that he held the elevator door open for oh, me. Wow. And I went, I went, <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. Um, so there was, um, there was energy in the air, you know, yeah, good, yeah. good, good energy. Okay. Um, you know, we had a little cassette player and we would just, uh, you know, rehearse the band, come right. up with ideas, um, very loose based ideas, but we never really demoed okay. the, the songs before we you know, going okay. into the studio. This was, you know, the days of unlimited budgets and true, true. you could write, write in the studio and, yeah. and, and we were yeah. kind of left to our own devices. Because I think it's, I think nothing against you and Billy, obviously, but Keith's magic touch that he had right then, 
is almost like a third member. You're this oh, like, you know what I'm doubt. saying? It's the, the magic is in what the three of you guys are doing yes. right at that moment. You know what I mean? Without I don't know that another producer would have been able to bring out the best in these songs and this album. No. And, and we all brought such diverse mm -hmm. specialties. Yeah. You know, Billy, obviously, uh, if, you know, being from the, the punk rock thing, although I, you know, I mean, his, his, his tastes of so, so beyond what became known as punk rock, you know, reggae and, uh, and he loved it. You know, I remember around that time he was listening to a lot of doors and credence and a lot of American rock and, you know, American roots, rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Keith coming from the dance side of things with Giorgio Moroda and doing those Donna Summers records. He was a, such a stickler for groove. It was drove drummers crazy because, <laughs> because uh, a number one drummers weren't used to recording to a click track, which we always did. Uh, now, now it's a lot different, but uh, back then rock drummers, didn't play to a click, but we, we needed that. We needed that consistency. Yeah. And also his sonic palette dance records had such a more um, broader frequency spectrum than rock records. Mm -hmm. Lots of emphasis on the kick drum and the bass mm -hmm. and the, the tightness of the music mm -hmm. was something that Keith also brought and also his pop sensibility. Mm -hmm. And then me as the, the, the token rock and roll guitar player bringing the, you know, my influences and, you know, my desire to paint colors with my instrument, like uh, Jimmy Page would have done as opposed to uh, just laying down one guitar track like uh, Eric Clapton or something. Yeah. So, um, so we all were like really well suited to fill the gaps th of each other's specialties. That's definitely true. Definitely true. Okay, so I w let's go to the track track two, daytime drama. I'm curious when you're, uh, in my understanding, I think Daytime Drama was one of the songs you may have gone into the studio already having worked on, probably on your little four track thing that you two were working on. Do you know going in that Daytime Drama is probably not going to be a single, but worthy to be on the album? 
do you see it is there a hierarchy in your mind of songs you like better than others or you know what's what's that political process of deciding what goes on and what doesn't what gets played on the radio and what doesn't I don't think Billy and I have ever had a had a to this day a discussion about what a single is or you just try and do the song justice and you don't try and force it and say oh this could be a single or something you know let maybe Keith is more aware of that kind of stuff but we would just you know we had to you know we had this groove you know that was one of the ones that we were rehearsing before with our band da, 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 da. and here here's the oddest thing is that uh, the inspiration for me <laughs> is very strange but this incessant bass groove which goes around and doesn't change every uh, two bars four bars mm. but the chords on top of it the inspiration for that was um part of the sunrise by yes <laughs> really Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> if you listen to Heart of the Sunrise, uh, yeah. all right, that bass line continues every two bars or whatever. Uh-huh. And then Rick Wakeman is playing these chords against it that change every bar. And that was my inspiration. I did it with guitar, but yeah. <laughs> Wild. I yeah. love stuff like that. Okay, now yeah. I'm going to go listen to them back to back and uh, see what I come up with. I love that. One of the other things, the as I think we talked about this last time, one of your signature moves is that sort of laser beam like sound from your guitar, and it Ooh. gets displayed very prominently in this song. And I was curious, was the is this something you come up with? Is this something Keith, some trick he does in the studio that you come at this together? How do you find that signature sound? Well, there was a there was a brilliant uh, piece of gear back then called the Lexicon PCM forty one, and that. That was the only piece of rack gear, pro gear that I owned at the time. And that's all over that record. Mm-hmm. It's probably on every song in some capability or not. So those kind of echoed, uh, all they were was like little noises on the guitar scrapes, but you could capture them and lock them so they repeated. And uh, it was a way for me to transition from section to section. I would throw them in as a kind of, uh, you know, way to glue the parts together. Um, And uh, it seemed to work really well. And it was also kind of a cool sonic thing. Totally. You know, I I think if you're going to use a guitar effect, I'm not really into subtle guitar effects. (laughs) You know, I think if you're going to use it, damn well use it make sure or don't use it at all definitely yeah Uh, i think hendrix was 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 definitely well he helped develop a lot of guitar effects him and his uh, electronics uh guru guy named roger mayer but they were not subtle with their use of effects and and that's the way i approached it if you're going to use it make sure people know about it yeah um one other thing i couldn't tell most of the drums on this album are drum machines, right? Or is someone playing over the top on the final mixes that we hear? About, about half and half. Okay. Yeah, there okay. were cert- certain songs that really dictated not deviating from the patterns. Yeah. And certain songs that absolutely had to be live drums. Yeah. Um, I think we were good at kind of camouflaging I agree. Them so that you didn't suddenly go, oh, that's the Lindrum and that's right. Tommy Price, our drummer. Yeah. Um, 
I guess that has a lot to do with how the record was mixed in that they were treated probably yeah. sim- similarly, even though they were different beasts. Yeah. Yeah. And I would argue as much as I love Whiplash Smile, the prominence of Drum Machine is a little more, a little heavier on that album than it is on this one. You don't listen to this thinking, oh, that's clearly a drum machine. But in right. Whip- on Whiplash, you do sometimes. Right. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Yeah. Um, okay. Track three, this is the big one, Eyes Without a Face. I believe it reached number six. I think it's I think it's Billy's biggest hit. Maybe Cradle of Love was bigger. I don't remember. One thing that really struck me in getting ready to talk to you, and I know we're talking about you and how great you are. I'd never noticed before how incredible the bass is on yeah. this song. Yeah. And I was looking it up, Sal Cuevas or something like that. I don't know who that is or how he got brought in, but he was incredible. Whatever he's doing is amazing. Yeah. Now. When we recorded the album, we had a great bass player, um, okay. Steve Webster. And the way we discovered Steve was uh, he had played bass on Alana Miles' Black Velvet. Uh-huh. And, and if you remember, the bass is so prominent and so great on it. We said, we got to get that guy. And that guy's... Re-. And we did. We got him and he's, he's uh, you know, he's the bassist on Flesh for Fantasy. And yeah. really, I mean, gr- brilliant bass player. For some reason, we just weren't getting the performance for Eyes Without a Face because it's it takes up such a big space in the in the track. And we tried a lot of different session bass players. Eventually we found through the musicians union, because uh, in New York the musicians union is very helpful and very strong. Somehow we got the guy to come in as Sal Cuevas, who was the bass player in the Dreamgirls Broadway show. Okay. And he was a an R&B bass player. And he came in and he had his bass way up high. Up, <laughs> and he was a big dude, had them big stubby fingers. <laughs> and the tone that came out of him, I remember he cut the track in the control room and from the first two bars we said oh we got the guy yeah yeah. it was the tone and the approach and the sensitivity i guess because it was just that was his his wheelhouse Mm -hmm. 
because it's a very R&B based, you know, yeah. you could imagine James Jameson could have come in yes. and cut, cut, cut that bass and yeah. done perfectly. Yeah. And I think Sal was from that, uh, from that school. Did you ever see or work with him again? He just came in, did the bass and left and that was it. Yeah, but I'm sure I know that we said he should get a, 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 a when the record went platinum, we said Sal has to get, make sure Sal gets a platinum record. Yes. Yes. You know? yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I had never quite picked up on it and you li- isolate it and listen just to what he's doing. And it's such a compliment because what I, you know, there's the, of course, the amazing solo and that heavy part in the middle of the song, but for the rest of it, it's, I don't know if it's straight up flamenco, but you're doing some very delicate picking on like, felt like, sounds like nylon stringed acoustic guitars or whatever, what you're doing very softly behind it all, you know? Yeah, it's, it's actually 12 string. And I oh, didn't, uh, I didn't own a 12 string. So we had to rent one and the strings, the strings were about that high off the, <laughs> off the fretboard and changing strings on a 12 string is a pain to get it by the time you get them in. So I just played the guitar as it came, uh-huh. crappy, rusty strings on it. And I was like, <laughs> I was struggling. <laughs> I remember, I, I remember we had a punch in quite a number of times because my hands were just like raw. Yeah. You know, I I get uh, you know sixty four bars or whatever. I go, let's stop! <laughs> Punch <laughs> me in! Stop! Uh, you know. Yeah. And uh, after that, I got a proper twelve string. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I so he has it. a rent, rented uh, SIR rented twelve string guitar. Okay. Was this another song that had been birthed with just you and Billy messing around on a four track, or is this something that you two cr- came up with in the studio? Um, this was also done, uh, we had this when we rehearsed with our band Okay. and the, the chords on, I've told this story a number of times. I was living in the basement of my parents' house in Queens and, um, the only radio station I could get was CBS FM in New York, which was the oldie station. Mm. And there's a lot of those, those chords in that song are uh, traditional fifties doo-wop chords. Mm. Uh, that it's called one, four, five, seven go up the, the uh, scale in that order. And I'm listening to them. I'm getting ready to go into rehearsal. I'm listening to this and there's all these, you know, fifties crooners uh, and even uh, guys like um, group of guys who did on Broadway, the drifters and things oh, like drifters. that. Right. And I'm listening. I'm going, these guys are all crooners and that's kind of in Billy's range. He's a, he's a bit of a crooner. Yeah. So I went into rehearsal and I kind of like, I didn't want to play the chords the way that they were on these fifties records. I wanted them to be a little bit sadder and a little bit more embellished. So I took every chord and made them into a major seventh and a minor seventh, which gives it a lilt. And I'm just playing it, you know, you know sitting there, Billy walks in, Oh, what's that? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, that's just these fifties chords, you know? And, he, and uh, he, he always carried around a legal pad with lyrics on it. And I guess he had watched this French, Okay. horror film I don't, I don't know if it's horror film but it's this woman whose face yeah. is disfigured and it's called eyes without a face and that's why the the chorus female is in french oh because it's a french film and got it and we just kind of melded the two he said i think i have something that might go with those chords and you know sometimes those kind of things just drop out of the sky for yeah. you and, yeah yeah and, uh, and we uh we kind of you know developed the song from there yeah I was curious, you know, a lot of um, 
the quote-unquote hair metal bands that came around later in the decade, the second single was always the ballad mm. because they would come out with the first one to remind everyone they still rocked. Yeah. And the second one would be the ballad so that they could attract women. Not that you guys played along those same lines, but I am mm. curious if after Eyes Without a Face becomes such a big hit, do you notice your fan base diversifying when you're playing shows or suddenly more ladies there? Or was it not that kind of a ballad? Um, I think there were always ladies there for, for Billy Looking Idol. You two back then, yeah, <laughs> and st still still are. I mean, yeah. I can't I can't take credit for any of that. Uh, you could take some <laughs> but, credit uh, back then, but, Steve. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, he's a good-looking boy, so yeah. you know. <laughs> and and also the music, you know, we we weren't a metal band, and uh, the thing about punk rock was it was all inclusive, you know, uh, because it was so image-oriented and. You know, the shops in New York, the punk rock shops down on St. Mark's, you know, girls looked fantastic in all of that gear with the bondage trousers and the ripped up T-shirts and stuff. Uh, it was such a great fashion. It was so you could really go down to St. Mark's and kick yourself out and come, you know, and, and the the salespeople there looked fantastic. So they knew how to, you know, if you said, oh, I need a pair of, you know, um, you know, leather trousers with you know, bondage shot, you know, they said, Oh, th you know, they knew how to make you look good. Yeah. So, uh, females were a big part of that thing okay. as well, you know. So, um, right from right from the get go, the audience was definitely half okay. female. I wondered, and, and yeah, and also, we had we had we had a female in the band, true. Good point, Judy with, on keyboards, the, yeah, yeah. So, uh, we were kind of all inclusive, <laughs> yeah. Good point. Um, one last little thing about eyes that I want to mention that I hadn't picked up on before that middle section is Billy basically doing a rap because rap music was becoming so huge in New York at the time. I hadn't necessarily connected the two before Were you listening to a lot of rap and hip hop back then too. It was just starting. I, I, yeah. came, I went to see run DMC um, a buddy of mine, Eddie Martinez, who ended up being in Robert Pump, he was a guitarist and played on Addicted to Love. And nice. uh, he was one of the guitar players in New York that I really, really was a fan of. He's a, just a great guitar player. I heard him first. I was getting my guitar repaired. It was in a repair shop, a little thing. And he was picking up his guitar and playing. And I went, who's oh. that guy? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, we became friends and consequential. But he played on all those Run DMC records, Rockbox and stuff. So... At that time, you know, it was rap had guitars in it and stuff. And then we used to go see these three girls from the South Bronx called the ESG who were doing mixing rap. Yeah, um, and that's probably the first time I saw turntables on, on yeah. stage. But it was also live, live drummer, live guitar. Um, and obviously Blondie was, you know, they, yeah. they, they were utilizing some of that. And, and it was exploding in, in the you know, in the art world as well. And you had uh, people like Basquiat and Keith Haring embracing all of that. It was all part of that downtown New York scene, East Village, Soho. And in, and we were just looking for sounds and inspiration outside of what had come before. We didn't want to just, you know, uh, take inspiration from, uh, and especially for me as a guitar player, I didn't want to just recreate what had come before. We wanted to try and, utilize different things. So, um, so yeah, we did, we definitely, definitely went to a lot of rap. That's great. You know, hip hop or whatever you want to call it. Grandmaster Flash saw yeah. all of that. 
because they looked like rock stars. You know, that was another thing. They acted and looked like rock stars. And DMC, man, all those guys in the hats and the leathers, and they look, you know, it was as cool as seeing the Beatles in their suits. You know, it, I loved bands that had a look, you know, that I, that, you know, that uh, they all looked like they belonged together, you know, and, and yeah. uh, that, that was a big part of it. Yeah, I believe it. Okay, track four, this would be the end of the first side, Blue Highway. Um, I, you know, it's interesting to me that this song I feel like has become sort of a set piece on your live shows. Mm -hmm. I've seen you guys, I don't know, three or four times and uh, it's played near the end mm -hmm. most of the times, I think. And doesn't, is this the one that transforms into the Top Gun theme song? Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this yeah. has become a real staple of your live show, but it wasn't a single. So it's no. almost like it's become more popular over time. It's definitely an album track, you know. You know, I remember I was surprised when, um, you know, we were doing the record and uh, and Keith and Billy said, oh, take an extended guitar solo at the end, you know, and I went, oh, really? Okay. And that was, the solo is very Hendrix influenced. And that was I homage to being in his studio. We recorded an Electric Lady. And the story I always tell <laughs> Back then, I was lying, but I said, "said I come in, I came in the next day, and the solo was on tape, and I don't remember playing it, but, but uh, you know, made for yeah, good press, but of course, yeah, yeah, of course. but I, I was definitely thinking, wow, you know, this is the house that Jimmy built, and I'm gonna yeah. play, play something very influenced by Jimmy, you know, that makes sense because of all the songs, it has the most." bluesiness to it i guess you would say exactly. which exactly. is not a thing that you associate with you guys very often right. but blue highway has the closest is the closest relative of a blue song on the album i would say absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I remember i i wanted to 
that guitar, uh, it's one one guitar track on the on the song, wow. and it was recorded with a Rockman, a little which was like a when we demoed up things because a Rockman was a little little box that you didn't have to mic up an amp or anything. It was uh, invented by Tom Schultz from Boston, the oh, band sure. Boston. And that was, you know, I always used that for demos. And when, when we did Blue Highway, uh, I used that as, a, as, you know, just to get the track done quickly, da, 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 throw it down. And I wanted to re-record the guitar because it was a rock man. And then the Billy and Keith said, there's no way you re- <laughs> it's perfect the way it is. And I went, but it's a rock man. And I right. said, it doesn't matter. No. Nobody's going to return the album because it's a rock man. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> As I said, you, you have a point. <laughs> That's great. Um, I'm always curious if you're recording in Electric Ladyland, who else is recording in the studio while you're doing it? You mentioned Miles Davis, but who's in like the neighboring studio? You know, initially we had a drummer, but we were, we, for some reason, we great drummer and still a friend of mine, but we, we couldn't quite capture uh, what, what we were looking for. So we were looking for a drummer to, to track uh, the songs and, and to move them along, as was the case in, in Rebel Yell. We, we actually uh, recorded it with a Lindrum initially. And then we're looking for, we brought in a couple of drummers and it wasn't happening. And then the band Scandal was recording in Studio B. And uh, Mike Chapman was the producer, very well-known, successful producer. And we were in the hallway and we heard the drums and we go, that guy sounds pretty good. Wow. You know, he's loud. Uh (laughs) Wow. Who's that guy? He's hitting hard. (laughs) And, uh, and somehow Keith, uh, asked Mike Chapman who the drummer was, found out he's Tommy Price. And we said, you know, somebody cornered him and said, hey, what next door, you fancy coming in and have a play on something? And I think Rebel Yell was the first thing he played on. And, you know, within, you know, four four bars, we went, that's the guy. That's you the know. guy. Yeah. That's it right that's there. Him. Yeah. That's wild. I was going to guess Scandal, just because that seemed like the perfect band to be next door to you guys in that moment. Um, okay, we slip, we, we turn it over, we're on side two. Now, on the CD that I have, it's sides three and four. And is that because the first album was considered one and two, and this is three and four, and I don't know, I guess, Whiplash yeah, I five and six or something? I didn't know that. You just turned me on to an idea. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea about that. Yeah, if you can see, it yeah. says three and four right there. Okay, right. Anyway, yeah. uh, just curious. That's okay. a Billy Idol. That's a Billy Idol idea. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> oh, without a doubt. Okay. All right. Kicks off with Flesh for Fantasy, which to me has one of the greatest rock riffs ever. Well, there's a change of pace of fantasy and taste. Do you like good music? How do you like to dance? Oh, yeah. Hanging out for a body shop at night. Ain't a shame what we do to feel all right. Oh, yeah. So, when will you call? Bye. 
It's one of those riffs that should have, that has been floating in the sky, waiting for the right person to pluck out and put in a song, and you were that guy. And uh, it's just magical. And this, from what I understand, was a song that started out as kind of a punky, fast, quick thing, but was turned into this like slinky, yeah. sexier thing later. Yeah, I mean, this, the, the verses were always as they appear on the, in the final result. Uh, we had a different chorus, and um, and I remember we we had one A and R guy, a guy named Jeff Aldrich at, at Chrysalis, and um, Jeff was great, super supportive. And I remember he, he came in at some point and said, uh, you, know, uh, you know, he's knocked out with everything. He said, oh, that you know, Flesh Fantasy, you guys got to come up with a better chorus. You know, it's not you, you, you're cheating yourselves on this. And he said, you, you don't be afraid. I remember he said, don't be afraid to let the song be what it is, this kind of R&B thing, because we were thinking we couldn't get away with it. We had to punk it up somehow in, in the chorus. And we said, okay, you know, let's just keep that same groove. And that uh, that bass part is obviously Motown influenced. You know, those sort of bass lines were being utilized in, a, in a, amongst a lot of bands in the 80s. You know, they were taking their cues from that. So, And then somehow, because of that incessant that's a lindrum on there, incessant bass and, and drums. I, I came up with these kind of very, this very effective, affected, clean, sparkly, ethereal guitar that could float on top of it and just play these. I mean, there's very sophisticated guitar chords on there and certainly must have thrown Billy for a loop thinking, what am I, what am I singing over, you know? Yeah. But somehow he drifted right, he drove right through those chords. I mean, kudos to him. I don't know how he found the melodies to go yeah. through those, because there's a lot of very strange guitar chords in there. Really? Um, yeah. And, huh. um, and he found the, 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 the glue to go through it. So, um, yeah. Very cool, you know. When, Incredible. Uh, you know, I was influenced a little bit by John McGee, but from Susie and the Banshees mm -hmm. at the time, who was doing some of these clean, ethereal guitar things. Uh, guys in XTC that I, yeah. I was a fan of, you know, Andy Partridge and, and Dave, the other guitarist. And uh, and Andy Summers is another one who was doing, um, you know, uh, Driven to Tears is one of those kind of guitar things. I remember I saw the police before the second their second album came out and they were just, I saw them at the Hotel Diplomat and I had to buy the ticket for the next night because they were so brilliant. Yeah. And I'd, I'd never heard a three piece like that with this, this guitarist who was floating on top of the whole thing. So Flesh was definitely influenced by some of those, whatever you want to call them, new wave yeah. guitar yeah. players. Uh, I'd but, never pieced that together before, but you're so right. The Not the commanding heavy riff in flesh for fantasy yeah. but the softer sparkly stuff you said yeah yeah you're right straight out of something andy summers might have done around that same time with without a doubt without a doubt yeah. i have to I have to give props to yeah. him and and there, you know there was some other guitar players who were definitely utilizing you know echo and effects and creating this palette but uh, we, you know, all would have been part of, you know, you know, part of the new wave. What was, what was uh, called you know, new yeah. wave at the time. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, this one might be my favorite song on the album. 
Um, I think it reached number 26. You know, for us, for an album that is as legendary as this one is, it really only had two top 40 hits. Rebel Yell did not crack the top, crack the top 40, but was big on mainstream or alternative radio or uh, rock radio. Same with uh, Catch My Fall, which is going to come next. But you guys even still were managing, I think it's those videos, honestly, that were just so omnipresent, pushing an image, pushing great music. You're in everybody's living room and they're loving it, you know, because of that, that stuff. And this one in yeah. Yeah, um, you know, and I, th I thought it was, you know, it was important for us to have uh, the very first video, which is the live performance, the, the Rebel Yell video, which was done by Jeff Stein, who was, he did the, the Who's Kids Are All Right. Uh -huh. uh, he's a, he, he was great at capturing bands live. And we actually, it was recorded at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. And we were plugged in and actually playing. And we actually really? played, we played a concert. Uh, for the audience, um, they announced it on the radio, said Billy Idol's doing a video yeah. tomorrow, Capitol Theater. So those are all bit of genuine Billy Idol fans. No and we're actually playing, although it's, it's yeah. a, you know, in the video, it's the, the, the album track. But we felt it was important because we were going to go out into a, you know, extended tour and we were going to hit markets that really, you know, they weren't the hip markets, New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco. We, we were going to hit you know, any town USA, but that video and being on MTV showed the audience how to react, yes. how, to, how to dress, how Perfect. to react. And they'd show up wearing all the gear and, you know, being like they were in the video, you know, and a telegraph to them what a Billy Idol audience should be like. Yeah. I'd so, never thought of that, but that is perfect. You're right. It's like an instruction manual being beamed into everyone's house. Pretty much. What we're yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. Um, two little bits of trivia. One, apparently Billy says in his book that while he's recording the vocal on that, he's holding a copy of the book Venus and Furs, which is where the Velvet Underground got their name from. And secondly, at the time, I was glad to have Vital Idol, although it's not something I go back to very often because I prefer the regular versions these long dance versions but the extended version of flesh on vital idol is pretty killer that's probably yeah. the best remix that's on that remix album i'll agree with i'll agree with that yeah that's gary langan did it he was oh. uh, he was a member of art of noise yep and we loved we loved art of noise and that you know trevor horn and yep and gary langan and uh so uh we we sent the the multi-tracks over to London, and I remember Billy and I were uh, were actually down in Tortola. We were staying at the the. Uh, we were pretty burnt out <laughs> after the Rebel Yell tour. We had been out on the road six six months or so, and mm -hmm. so uh, Terry Ellis, the the president of the label, sent us down to stay at his house. Said, "You boys need a vacation," nice. and uh, we were misbehaving a little bit. Yeah. By that. <laughs> you need need to go chill out a little bit, which we didn't. We did. Right. We continued right on. <laughs> Send send us to Tortola, where it's the the uh, the home of the English rum. <laughs> so we're like, wow, the official rum of English Navy, Pusser's. It's called Pusser's rum. And, oh, great! We'll, we'll, we'll drink that. You know, the party but, um, just moved to a different location. That's all. But they sent over the uh, the uh, cassette hmm. of the remix that Gary had done, and we flipped out. We said, Oh my God, this is exactly yeah. what what we were looking for. So yeah, that is a killer yeah. remix. I agree. 
Okay, track uh, two or track six, Catch My Fall. This was the fourth single off the album. And this is one that I still really like as well. And I think it's probably because it's the least, you hear it the least often today compared mm. to the other ones. Mm. Um, I remember the video being very striking with him in the shower, washing all the face paint off and all that kind of stuff. This is one of the, this is the only song I believe on the album that you don't have a co-writing credit on. How right, did this, how did this is, yeah. one come about then? Billy wrote it on an acoustic guitar, came into the studio and, um, you know, I think on every Billy Idol record, there's some song which is a, a, a Billy Idol on his own. Sweet 16 would be would be the, another one. There's always been that that one track where Billy will come in with the acoustic guitar that he's worked on. And um, and it was uh, it on that record. It would have been Catch My Fall. OK. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, did you have any say in it being the fourth single? As I was saying earlier, Blue Highway was not a single, and yet that one might be more popular today. Was there ever talks about what to put out as the fourth single? It, it didn't involve me, okay. <laughs> you know. You know, obviously, with I was very much saying how important it would have it was to have Rebel Yell, the title track, uh -huh. as the first release. Yeah, yeah. You know, I after that, to be, whatever. Was uh, it, yeah, well, yeah. After that, then they're going for radio play and all that. But I didn't. I mean, we never really. We didn't follow singles charts or anything like that. We very Billy and I are very not business oriented in yeah. in that sense. I, I think when, and you can't be, when you're writing a song, the worst thing you can do is go, hmm, this is the single. And you you know, you don't know until the, the end result and the singles present themselves. Sometimes you're surprised. Yeah. You go, wow, we never would have thought that one, but it, through the process of recording it, it becomes the obvious choice. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think Catch My Fall is, is a pretty obvious yeah. uh, uh, song. It's, it's, um, it's a pop song. It's a, yeah. and it's a, you know, it's not quite a ballad, but it's not a rocker. Right. It's a, it's very much in the tradition of some of the Elvis things and some of, yeah. or, or closer maybe even to Roy Orbison or things yeah. like that. So um, I think it was an obvious choice. Um, something that I had always wondered and I got confirmed getting ready to talk to you. First of all, I, I miss 80s saxophone. I love I love the sax from back then. And it was Mars Williams playing the sax on this song, right? Right, yeah, who was in the Psychedelic Furs. Yeah, Psychedelic yeah. Furs. 
He yeah. also played the sax in um, Christmas Wrapping, that famous that's song that's right. now by the waitresses. Oh, I love that song. Yeah, he's uh, the one who plays that sax I, riff. I love that song because that song I remember specifically. That's I'm I'm not that big on Christmas songs, but uh-huh. that one I remember the the, the winter uh, in being living in New York and going shopping for gifts. And that song was playing in every store and it was snowing is right out of a, you know, really, mir- I mean, that scene is, you know, to me, it's like the eighties version of miracle 34. Yes. It's a, but I, I, yeah, I didn't know that Mars played on yeah, that song. That's Mars. I, that's my favorite Christmas song. Me yeah. too. Uh, yeah. I had the guy who wrote it. Christopher Butler was the guitarist of the waitresses. Okay. I had him on here a couple of years ago. He wrote that song in 15 minutes in the back of a taxi, and he lives off the royalties to this day. I love it. Great. Pays if all ever, of his bills. <laughs> if, you, if you ever speak to him, let him know. That's my... We email sometimes. I'll email him. I'll let him my, know. Uh, it's my favorite Christmas song of Good. all time. Yeah. And speaking of Mars, I I talked to Donnie V of Enough is Enough recently. Oh, sure. Okay. And yeah. Mars plays with them, too. Mars gets around. I think he Great. lives in, yeah, I think he lives in Chicago. Okay. I think so. You know, he, uh, yeah, he, he actually, there was a couple of performances that we did that he came out and played with us live. You know, there was a good group of musicians in New York at that time. And uh, the the two brothers and the Psychedelic Furs and the Duran guys and Mars was all, was definitely part of that group of, of us who were all hanging out, partying and, and making music. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Donnie was saying that Mars uh, knows how to party, that he and Mars had some serious drug parties back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I believe he's sober. He's been yeah, sober yeah, for, sure he is for, now. for many years. But yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was a good party buddy. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. We all okay. were. <laughs> yeah, no question. Yeah. All right, crank call. This is uh, talk about uh, Billy singing in a croon or in an Elvis style. This is definitely him pulling out his croon. It's great. 
I like one thing I, I noticed this time getting ready to talk to you. Do you tell me if I'm way off? I hear some T-Rex bang yeah. a gong right. riffs going on in here. Yeah, it's definitely T-Rex inspired. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'd never picked up on that before until getting ready to talk to you. And I thought, oh, that's got to be T-Rex. And yeah. I love T-Rex. So I thought that was a really smart choice. Yeah. T-Rex was one of those bands when um, when Billy and I uh, first met up, you know, I, my influences were very different than his um, because obviously, you know, he grew up with a lot of these uh, same bands, but when punk rock happened, when the pistols exploded and, and Billy was part of that whole scene and, and they kind of threw out everything that, you know, a lot of these bands that had become big and living in their mansions and, all, and, and not really being in touch. And also, you know, the economic thing of uh, happening in England and, uh, you know, pe people didn't have money and, and, uh, and, and suddenly punk rock comes along and these kids feel like they can make their own music and you don't have to have studied at the Royal Academy of Music and you're not in a limousine, it was very different than we didn't have that in New York. So we, I was still embracing my guitar heroes and Led Zeppelin and some of the progressive rock guys and all that. But what we did bond over was bands like the glam bands, the early glam bands, Slade, T-Rex, Sweet, yeah. uh, because those were great pop records you yes. know they, they were rock pop but they were great songs so t-rex was always something that we kind of bonded over as well as things like the velvet underground and lou reed and, and some of those things so uh those were like common ground to us even though we had uh had different experiences as musicians right. later on you know okay uh in the book i believe billy says something to the effect of he was still singing this song the night before the tapes had to be delivered to the record label. Do you remember this? No. You know, we, we had the luxury of having that studio as Lockout, True. which bands, I mean, Electric Lady, 24-7. And that really afforded us a lot of time to experiment. And a lot of the guitar ideas were done where I was left to my own devices. And I, I would say, uh, I, I know the riff and I, as an example, the riff and eyes without a face was, uh, I would say, just keep, give me 45 minutes. You know, we did, we didn't know what was going to go in there. I had it in my mind that had to be some sort of heavy guitar riff. Cause you had, you know, couldn't yeah. just have a ballad, you know, right. rock and roll guys. Right. Right. So the fact that, um, that Billy could go in and, and, and probably him and Keith, I had to deliver the record and yeah. you know okay this is your last vocal and probably <laughs> pulled in all nighter and yeah uh, okay. i would have i would have probably been long gone by then you know. <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right i'm done I'm, right. I, know, I know you know i know i'm finished am i finished keith yes. am i done because <laughs> it was exhausting you know sure. um you know you're putting in the hours and there's a lot of brain work and it's you know making making records is is uh you know you're you're the clock is running you know, you're aware that, you know, you're paying $150 an hour for the studio. Sometimes that's a good thing to have that pressure on you. But we did have the luxury to, to try yeah. any idea, you know. Yeah. Okay, great. That's a that's a great. And do you, is that one I think still gets pulled out sometimes live, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, second to last, do not stand in the shadows.
the opening of that song is you doing your kind of flamenco thing again. Was that recorded separately? Did I, did you guys, as a consensus, say this song needs to kick off with Steve doing his thing? How does this happen? Um, I think Shadows was the first song written for the album. That's right. And uh, and that was the first thing we rehearsed in that little rehearsal studio. Um, and that guitar thing was was there from the very beginning. That song is probably the link between the previous album and Rebel Yell, because that song could have gone on the first album, uh, with, along with things like Hold in the Wall, and et cetera. And I kind of, Shadows was, def we were definitely playing to what we knew. You know, it's a hundred and whatever, 80 BPM, you know, a lot of adrenaline full of testosterone and uh, you know as as we became more sure of ourselves we we veered away from some of those tempos mm. we didn't always have to play Ramon's speed and we yeah. could play uh, you know flesh for fantasy group we could get a little groovier with things yeah. but shadows was definitely the, the 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 first thing to be done that makes a lot of sense um, there's a really kind of high-pitched keyboards, almost a spooky sound that goes on throughout that song that I really like a lot. Anyway, this is a seminal album, and this song complements it without standing out necessarily as being like a huge hit or a high point or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, no, no, I mean, one of the things is um, the key of that song, it's in D, which is very, re rarely does Billy Idol have a song in D. <laughs> I remember... <laughs> you know, we, we we weren't aware of things like keys and things uh -huh. like that. We didn't really think you could change the key. You know, right. that, that's for proper songwriters. We don't do that. <laughs> and um, and he's you know his his nuts are clenched for that chorus. Yeah. He's way up at the top of yes, his range. You know, when I, when I think of that song now, I go, why didn't we lower the key? <laughs> you know, why did we torture the guy like that? Oh, that's so funny. You know? That's so funny. Yeah, I could totally see that. You know, um, we, even a half a step would have helped. <laughs> we didn't think of that. You know? <laughs> right. Um, okay, the last track, Dead Next Door. Watch the sky. Sunday was hot, Monday was not, Monday was not, or the dead next door. You know, it's an oddity on the album. It sounds like a great album closer. It almost sounds like something that, I was curious how much thought went into it. It could be something that you guys kind of created in a mood right on the spot or something you really thought about. That's yeah, funny. Um, 
that once again, it's that Lexicon PCM41 piece of gear. And you can, there's a setting on it, which will take your guitar signal and it, in, a, in, in its own rhythm, uh, it plays the note an octave lower and then flick, flicks it an octave higher. And I had demoed that up at home um, I actually have on cassette the complete demo of, of the embryonic thing. Um, I should post that online at some point because yeah. it's pretty complete. It, and I brought it in and I plugged in the guitar and I started playing, or I might have played Keith and Billy the, the, uh, the uh, cassette. And, uh, and I said, I don't know quite what this is, but it's certainly a cool guitar thing, you know? And, and we thought it was a great album closer you know this kind of and i remember we needed to track some some drum effects to it and keith was always the one to do to to man the lindrum but because it's it's there's no set time i'm playing to the effect um i actually had to manually play the drums because i could anticipate what my guitars were doing and I remember we just kind of, it's kind of like um, an art piece. Uh, you know, one of the, the things that I liked was those records that um, uh, Robert Fripp and Brian Eno did. Those kind of like, uh, there's a record they did called No Pussyfooting, which right. Frippertronics, his his effects and and Eno with his synthesizers. And, um, and I was a fan of things like Tangerine Dream. I love, you know, the kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, space. It's not rock, but uh, electronic, early electronic sure. music. Right. And I approached the music for that, like uh, that, as if it was a film soundtrack or something. That makes sense. And I think it, it, it's got such atmosphere. And that when, when Billy came up with the lyrics in the title, mm-hmm. Dead Next Door, I went, that's perfect. That's, yeah, that's exactly is. what I'm feeling about this. It's kind of a post-apocalyptic, mm. uh, you know, uh, there was a film, uh, with uh, who was in it? Sydney, Sydney Poitier, I believe, where it's they're living. He's the one, only the devil, the flesh, and something or else is the title. And mm. he's living in a post apocalyptic New York City. Mm. And he discovers two other people that are the only other survivors. And that film kind of, I always imagined that music being for that film. Really? Yeah. yeah. Ooh, I love that. Okay, well, that's the end of the album. It's one of the best ever. I usually will bring in, <laughs> I don't know why, I find it interesting to hear what uh, Robert Criscow says about things sometimes, even though I almost always disagree with him, and I don't even always understand his logic. But he only gives this album a C. Videos have been the making of this born poser's career and the, un- <laughs> and the unmaking of his music. Not that they've changed how hard and hooky it is, much less turned off the unwitting many who find sexism sexy. But if you've got no taste for the sound of the sneer, the visuals definitely aren't fantasy enough. See, I don't agree with any of that. I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah. shut up, Robert Criscow. You don't understand how good this is. Yeah, considering that uh, it was Billy's girlfriend, Perry, at the time, who co- co-did all the videos and hired right. All of the girl, the girl dancers, and did uh, a lot of the visuals and stuff, and you know a lot of the. You know, and like I said, we had uh, the, the keyboards of Judy Dozier, most of them on the record. So mm-hmm. uh, we had a female assistant engineer at the time. The studio manager was female. We punk rock really was against that whole sexist 
think it really was not about that. So I, I, I disagree wholeheartedly. Yeah, the, I, the funny thing is the first review that came out in Rolling Stone for the record was not favorable. But after the success in their year wrap up, they praised it. They gave it like an A minus or something. And I, I said, it's the same. Is it a different record suddenly? <laughs> you know, um, right. and, you know, and, and, uh, and Billy got a lot of flack for the heavy guitars on it and maybe the, the uh, guitar solos and having technique involved in it from some of the punk purists and things like that. And I couldn't have given a shit about that. Yeah. It's music. It's music is music. And, uh, and we were very adamant that um, anytime there was going to be a guitar solo on the record, it was not just to go weedly, weedly, weedly. It had to serve a purpose and it had to reflect what the totally song agree. was about. So um, totally yeah, agree. Yeah. No, we didn't get great reviews at the beginning of that record, but. Well, it's viewed as a classic now. It's sold millions. It uh, was one of the biggest albums of the decade. It still sounds fresh. I mean, ultimately, it doesn't matter what anyone says because you guys won. You know, you proved that it mattered and that it was worth it. It was. It's a classic. Yeah, I think critics always have a hard have a hard time when when something can be consumed by the heartland. Mm. You know, and that's who we wanted to play shows for we weren't yeah. uh there's there's only so many times that you can play the 930 club in, in washington dc and uh and play the ritz or you know barely selling it out i remember at the beginning the ritz was one of the first shows we played on on that tour we barely sold it out mm. um we wanted to play to a lot of people and you know the the, the you know, people don't remember, but Billy's first single, when it was Moni Moni, they wouldn't put his picture on the cover because radio stations wouldn't play people with spiky hair. And, what? You know, yeah. They, and the record label gave him a lot of shit about that. And they wanted him, to, because he's a good looking guy, they said, oh, well, yeah. maybe, maybe you could be like the blonde um, Rick Springfield. Nothing against Rick Springfield. Right. I love Rick Springfield. Me too. But it's not what Billy was no. about. So, so we um, definitely were willing to bring this kind of music as an alternative yeah. to the, the heavy metal stuff. But still, if you don't have heavy guitars or rock guitars in your music, you're not going to sell to an American audience. That's right. Even U2 has guitar hero stuff mm -hmm. in it. It's yep. done in a, in a unique way. You know, you, America loves rock guitar, you know, mm -hmm. and they love the, the duo thing, the Jagger Richards, the mm -hmm. Tyler Perry. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and we thought we could be a new version of that in yeah. some way, you know? Yeah. Um, I think you did. Uh, last thing too, you talk about shows you were playing I'm in going back over Billy's book. He was talking about early on, you guys were opening for flock of seagulls. And yeah. like blowing them off the stage. And I like Flock of Seagulls a lot. There's nothing, that's not a knock on them. Um, but I can't, I can just imagine <laughs> the crowd coming to see Flock of Seagulls and being just knocked out by you and Billy, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, it was pretty visceral back then, the, what we were doing. It was, a, we were, we were definitely running on adrenaline. And um, and we felt we were we were there to present something new, you know. And this music had energy to it, and you know we had a powerhouse band, you know. I mean, 
I wouldn't have wanted to open for that band. <laughs> you know, it was pretty good, you, yeah. you know, and we kind of covered a lot of bases, you know. We always tried to involve the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always a matter of, uh, you know, let them get as sweaty and right. and, and wet as we are. We're right. all, all kind of going to celebrate this together. Yeah. You know, we weren't going to be like up there just like, uh, there was a lot of aloofness in 80s music, mm-hmm. you know, bands that just kind of presented themselves in this kind of way that was, I think that's why Springsteen was so successful because he didn't, he was part of the audience and included them and he was there for them. And the clash yeah. was certainly that attitude. Yeah. You know, I remember I went to see the clash at, at Bonds in New York. And that was the thing that struck me is that, the audience was part of that show. Good. Whereas when I had gone to see a lot of the other bands, I remember going to see The Who at one time and uh, being really disappointed. This was when Kenny Jones was the drummer and mm. and they the drum riser was so far up. I thought, how can you play to that drummer? He's way up in the air. And there was just no yeah. connection. I love The Who. Yeah. And and I, I we've opened for them since and they're incredible now. And the drummer's not up on that massive <laughs> riser. They're they're a tight unit now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um and I thought that's that's one thing we never wanted. We was that, you know, we've we always felt that you have to play as a unit, as a band, and you kind of have to feed off each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, you nailed it. Um Steve, thanks for talking with me. I mean, this was a dream. I, uh, your, your music was foundational in making me who I am. And this album was one of the biggest of my life. And, uh, you, what you guys did, I like whiplash just as much in its own way. Mm. And so just thank you for everything you've done. Thanks. Oh, thanks, man. I can't wait for you to hear some, some of our new music. I can't wait either. It's very much in the spirit of this record. Good one. Good. Yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, I think yeah. devil's playground was a li- almost a little too, Medley yeah, and yeah. Um, the Trevor Horn one was almost a little too soft. It's like something needed to be, it weren't getting right to the heart of it. It's, you know what I mean? The, the new stuff is all guitars. It's Good. all, you know, and Butch Walker is the producer on it. And uh, he's a guitar guy. So yeah. we, we had a blast. Good. Uh, so, and the songs are great. And uh, I think, I think, I think people are going to really, people that like this mm-hmm. stuff, they won't be disappointed. Good. Killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we want. Okay. Well, thank you, hey, Steve. my pleasure. All right. There you have it, Steve Stevens. If you haven't already, you probably have, but go back and listen to Steve and I's episode from last fall. I think it came out in November. That was great, too. Um, I was kind of burnt out on deep dives, so I haven't done any for a while, but I'm, I want to get back into it, and I want to go big. I want to do, like, big-time albums like this, you know, seminal albums that mean something to all of us. So I'm going to be working on more, doing more of those. Huge thanks to Steve for joining us with this. It's not often you get to hear from a legend like him how this album came to be, but we did it. All right? Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>